Welcome to City Talk, a podcast from City View Church in Northern Virginia. City View is a church for all ages and all nations. We offer to everyone the hope, healing, and help that is found in Jesus Christ. Continuing in our Foundation Genesis 1-11 through series, Pastor Mark is addressing a sensitive topic in our culture, the definition of marriage. We are experiencing a moral revolution. What was once generally accepted and taken for granted is now marginalized and even condemned by some. We talk about what marriage is from Genesis 2. How can we be faithful witnesses to God's standard when the world rejects it? We must love our neighbors in truth, love, and humility. You know, you would never build a house on the sand in a floodplain because you know full well that the shifting sand in that area is ultimately going to take the house down. But you know, building your life on the shifting standards of the world's morality will do the same for you. See, the world's standards change. What was once acceptable or unacceptable is now considered a fine thing. So as the world standards shift and change, we need to ask a couple questions. Who's right? And then who has the authority to decide what is right? We're doing a series now through the first few chapters of the Bible. We're calling it Foundation. And it's taking the basic truths of Scripture, saying, how can we build our lives on this? Because these are the standards that matter. God never changes, as we've talked about. His love never changes for us. God will never change His character. So He is the one that we need to build our life upon. So today we're beginning, we can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we'll be talking about marriage. Today we're going to look at what is marriage. Next week we'll talk about, well, what can make a marriage great. And this is important because God put it early in the Bible. He wants us to understand this. God's plan for marriage is and always has been one man and one woman becoming one flesh and living together with integrity. The Bible says this, we talked about this last week in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, um, you can open them there, or if you've got the version app on your phone, you can use that and follow along. But we've talked about creation to this point. We've talked about God made us. He has made us uniquely. He has made us in his image. Every human being has dignity and worth. Why? Because we're made in God's image. God then is now going to talk about how humans relate with one another. Verse 18, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground of the Lord, God formed every every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. Then the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not one found a helper for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would guide every word that is said today. Lord, I pray that you would have full control of our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to see the truth in your word. Father, I pray that I would stick to your word. I pray that anything I say that is not of you would fall on deaf ears. So Lord, I pray that you would take this morning, use it to minister to us. You know what we all need here. You know who needs to be encouraged, who needs to be challenged. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to do just that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Incidentally, everything we just read in Genesis chapter 2, Jesus affirmed. And Jesus affirmed it a couple places, but one of them is in Matthew chapter 19, where he says this, Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 4. Haven't you read? Jesus was being questioned by people. He was being questioned by religious people who said, yeah, yeah, we believe everything that was said in the ancient scrolls of the Bible. And Jesus turns and said to them, haven't you guys read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus affirmed this Old Testament teaching. It's not like something we have like, this is the Old Testament, and Jesus says it's a new way. Jesus affirmed what was said back in the beginning. So if it's good enough for Jesus to affirm, then we need to affirm it. As well, we need to build our lives on what God says way back at the beginning. And several things stand out from Genesis chapter 2 right away. When you go back and you look at it, verses 18 through 20, we were made for companionship. It's not good that man is alone. The context this has been given in is marriage. But I think the context is also much broader. God never made us to be solitary creatures. God made us for companionship and friendship. One of the worst things you can do to a person is put them in solitary confinement. It will break them. So God has never intended us to live our lives in even self-imposed solitary confinement. We need other people in our lives. It's not good for any of us to be isolated. We see also in this passage that man and woman are of equal value and worth in God's eyes. And it's not because either man or woman earned that worth, it's because God put his image into us. Our value is because God says you're important. Our value is derived from the fact that God says you matter, my image is made in you. I've created you and I've formed you for my purposes. Both man and woman are made from dust, both man and woman are made in the image and likeness of God. The other thing that's significant in this passage is the term that's used for helper does not not mean lackey or someone, hey, uh, you know, go, go get me this. That's not the term that is intended there. It is a sense of it's someone who supplements what the other is lacking. It's someone who the other person really needs. That's a helper. So man and woman are of equal value in God's eyes. Because God says so. In the context, then, 
the next thing we see that what matters in marriage, what, what the glue that holds it together is they become one flesh. It is a covenant unity. It is something that requires commitment and a lasting sense of we're going to stick this out and we will become one. The man and the woman form a family. At marriage, they become family. doesn't matter if they have zero children or 15 children. That is a family. Covenant unity. And in marriage, we also see it's God's idea. God was the first one to give away a bride. God intended marriage for the good of mankind. Marriage was instituted by God. It's not something that human beings came up and says, hey, we ought to try this. So right from this passage, we see some foundational truths that we need to build our perspective on. As human beings, none of us are intended to live solitary lives. We need one another. You need fellowship, you need friendship, you need companions in life. Men and women are of equal value before God. Why? Because God made us that way. Everyone is made out of dust, and everyone is also made in the image and the likeness of God. Marriage is a commitment. It is a lifelong, one-flesh covenant unity. And then marriage is God's idea. And we need to understand that. So what is marriage when we talk about marriage? You know, a generation ago, people would have laughed at you if you said, if you asked this question, they would have said, well, duh, it's obvious. I mean, everyone's believed the same thing for thousands of years. But marriage is the public family unit voluntarily formed by one man and one woman in which sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed. That's a pretty standard definition of marriage throughout the centuries. There's nothing revolutionary or I would say even controversial about this through the centuries. It's been a standard of Christian teaching for 2,000 years. We put it like this in our church statement of faith. God created the marriage relationship. It is unique to all other human beings, to all other human relationships. One man and one woman are united by God in a lifetime of commitment to each other. And the statement goes on. But this aligns with what the Bible says. Now let me say a few things about this statement right off the bat. You are welcome here if you disagree with this statement. Anyone can come here. You are always welcome at City View Church. We are not seeking to impose this statement on the outside world. But it is a value of ours as an organization. And I'll say that agreement with this value will be, is required for any form of leadership or teaching within this church. So I want to say this right off the bat. You're welcome here if you disagree with this statement. We're not trying to impose it on the world outside but it is a value system derived from the Word of God that we think is essential for anyone who will be doing any form of teaching or public leadership here at City View. See, we hold to a classic Christian definition of marriage that every branch and denomination of Christendom has agreed upon really up until just very recent times. For the most part, culture went along with what the church taught. 
But in my generation, everything got turned around. And so what we have seen inside the last 30, 40 years is a, what scholars say, this is a moral revolution. And when we talk about a moral revolution, I don't use that term just for hysteria. A moral revolution can be defined by three things, and you'll see them up here on the slides. First of all, something which had been condemned in the past is now celebrated. Something which culture as a whole looked at and just said, we don't want anything to do with that, is now celebrated. Secondly, what had been celebrated must now be condemned or put aside. And then the final stage is those who will not join the celebration of this change must be condemned. And we're seeing that play out in terms of marriage and sexuality in our culture and our society today. And so what do we do with these shifting sands? Everyone has seen Christians being ugly about it or professing Christians being ugly and others have compromised with things. So how do we live in light of God's standards and also show the attractiveness of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? It's challenging because we're in the midst of a moral revolution. Before, a generation ago, a Christian could talk about marriage and sexuality and you're the average person in society would say, well, sure, that's, that's obvious. Duh, everyone believes that. But now, if you espouse the biblical worldview, you can get in trouble. If you open your mouth and speak up about what God says about marriage, your company may frown on you. They may even penalize you. So what does a Christian do? It's a challenge for all of us. This revelation, this revolution, on the one hand, has happened remarkably quickly in terms of history, inside just a couple of decades. Yet at the same token, it's kind of followed a process which any moral revolution over time has. In terms of history, it happened very quickly. But in terms of our lives, it's been a slow thing. Another way this concept of a moral revolution has been put is that at first, society is shocked by some things. Shocked and offended by some behaviors. And that's the norm in society. But then, that shock morphs into a tolerance. Well, it's okay if they want to do this as long as they, and they is a very important word in all this, stay over there. And then the next stage in this revolution is an acceptance. Well, maybe it's okay for them. There's still this concept of them in there. And then there's an embrace of the behavior. Well, we actually think this is all right now. And then the society promotes it. And so this moral revolution has happened incredibly quickly in terms of culture. What society once mocked and found repulsive, it celebrates and promotes today. So it's very important that the church speaks with clarity in times like this. Why is our culture... Why are we so preoccupied with sexual identity? 
why is it a demand in many corners of society to buy into the LGBT agenda? Why the insistence on preferred pronouns? These are things which not too long ago, people would have scratched their head and said, what, what's the big deal? What's all this about? The whole movement, this whole shift in sexuality and what is marriage is all based on shifting sand. You know, it's been said that if you repeat a lie often enough, people will think it is the truth. If you listen often enough to slogans like love is love or Lady Gaga's born this way, if you listen to it over and over, it kind of forms grooves and channels in your mind and you start thinking, this is normal, this is just the way it is. And that idea, that quote, that if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth, was said by Hitler's chief of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. No matter how much you repeat it, a lie will never become the truth. Because truth doesn't shift, truth doesn't change. Truth is something we can build our life upon. And we build it on the truth of Scripture. But why is it so important? Because we're not the only church that are putting statements in our constitutions, our statements of faith, that refer to sexuality. You know, some will say, well, you know, why do you need to do that? Isn't the Apostles' Creed enough? Can't we all just go way, way back to the basics? Well, yes, and. You see, every creed was formulated to address issues of the day. And the creed, and the various creeds over the ages, were all formed to address issues the church was facing at a time. And as time goes along, different issues face the church. And we need to say, what does God say? What is God's perspective on this matter? The creeds were formed for a purpose. And the creeds, though, were not written by God, and sometimes we need to adapt and modify with them. The church has not faced issues before along this line. So the church needs to address it. Well, if you've got a statement about this, why not have statements about lying and cheating and all those other things? That's a good question. But the reason we haven't gone to the trouble of putting a formal statement on it is because society agrees. You won't find society endorsing cheating or lying or anything like that. The reality is many organizations today, Facebook, Twitter, Starbucks, have statements about sexuality and gender that they can impose on their employees and anyone affiliated with the organization. So in times of moral confusion, the church needs to speak up and speak out. The church is not obsessed with sex and sexuality. Our culture is. And as that message is all over culture, the church needs to stand up and not only say what's true, but say to the people of the church, here's how you can respond to this. Because you don't want your morality to be formed by social influencers. You don't want it to be formed by what is written on the bathroom walls in school. What we think of morality, how to live, needs to be derived from God and His Word. You know, a fish doesn't know it's wet because it's never been in the air. 
And likewise, if a person is constantly immersed in what the world says, that person is not going to realize that that is really far off from what God originally intended. We are living in a post-Christian culture that has lost its moral foundation, its moral footing, and is creating chaos and confusion. And we need to build on the solid foundation of what God says in His Word. Well, 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 wait a minute. Christian, aren't you being judgmental when you make a stand against this? How can you be so judgmental to others? But the truth of the matter is, everyone makes judgments. Everyone will make a judgment on sexuality and morality. The deeper question is who is right? And then the follow-up question to that is, who gets to decide who's right? Who has the authority? Right now, we live in really moral anarchy. It's if you believe something, you can do it with the caveat that you don't really hurt somebody. That's a recipe for chaos. We as a culture need a foundation. We need something greater than me to decide what is right and what is wrong. And the Bible gives us that. That is why we're doing this series on the foundation, building our lives on a solid foundation. Now, what I'm talking about today is an unpopular view in this world. And I believe what Scripture has to say is not very popular with the world around us. So I think there are three very important things we need to consider. Three very important things when we're talking about morality and sexuality and marriage that we, the church of Jesus Christ, need to remember. And with these three things, you need all three. It's like a three-legged stool. If you pull one of them out, the thing kind of collapses. And we'll work through each of these three and say, how can we live this out every day? Monday through Saturday, just not here on Sunday. And that is truth, love, and humility. And we'll look through at each of these. Truth. We cannot compromise on the truth that is in God's Word. This is our standard. We need someone greater than, better than us, better than me, to say, this is what matters. This is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And we say, it is the Word of God. Now, here's the thing. God's laws are for our good. Remember, He made us. He made us in His image and, and His likeness. He made us. He is the manufacturer. He knows what's best for us. As I've said before, with your car, your car tells you what kind of oil needs to go in it. I don't think anyone has ever complained to a car manufacturer saying, listen, I think that's a pretty bigoted view that you say that I've got to put 520 oil in my car. I would like to put orange juice in it. And don't I get to decide what's right and what's wrong? We'd never do that. I've never seen a Google review on any car manufacturer saying, man, they are so arrogant, so narrow-minded for saying that I have to use this kind of oil. God made us. He loves us. He knows what's best. And He says, this is how I've made you. These truths, these are the standards you are to live by. And if you apply these truths in your life, your life will go smoothly. You put the right oil in your car, it runs fine. Build your life on the right foundation, 
and you'll have a solid way to live. Truth. Never compromise from the truth of God's Word. That is the foundation we stand on. Second leg of this three-legged stool is love. Love. Truth and love are to be mingled together. You know, when God's people stand for the truth of God's Word, it may need to be with tears in our eyes as we tell others, look, I'm telling you this is wrong, not because I'm trying to condemn you, but it's because I love you and I care for you. And it, this is a silly illustration, but if you put orange juice in your car's motor, you're going to destroy your car. If you put this into your life, you're going to wreck your life. And because I love you and care for you, I want you to know the truth. We need to love the world around us. If we just stand for truth, but it becomes evident that we don't care, then we've lost our credibility. We speak truth, but it must be from the perspective of love. If we don't have that, we've lost our witness. God is working behind the scenes in people's heart, telling them what's right and wrong. He doesn't need us trying to do His job. Yes, we will stand up for truth when the opportunity arises, but it's not our job to go around telling people where they're all wrong. God is working behind the scenes on that. And we need to love the world around us. So we build, uh, we view our world, we interact with people with truth and with love. It's a both and. You see, we need to not see the world as the enemy. Even if they disagree with us. Even if the world has a view that you think, man, that's repulsive, that's gross, that's horrible. We can't see the world as a them. We're to love the world. The world is not our enemy. The people of the world are not our enemy. Our enemy is Satan. And Satan works. He destroys, he kills, he deceives, and he does this by twisting the Word of God. And by taking what Scripture says clearly and getting it to shift in people's mind. We want to see Satan destroyed and defeated, not those who line up with the things he says. We stand for truth, we stand for love. Then we must do it with humility. Humility is so important. Humility is attractive when Christians will stand up for the truth and at the same time can do it graciously and with conviction, with a firm conviction. See, here's the thing. All of us, as human beings, are born broken. And that includes sexually. Because we're born broken, we do things the Bible says is wrong. That's sin. And that brokenness, that sinfulness in us, separates us from God. And the thing is, none of us are good enough to meet God's standards. We just can't live up to what He says. His standard is perfection, and we all fall short. Pick your sin. Some may be more respectable in society's eyes or even church's eyes than others, but God says all sin is sin. It levels the playing field. And this is where as Christians we need humility because no Christian should ever think I'm better than so-and-so because the very essence of becoming a Christian is we recognize our brokenness and our sinfulness 
before God. And we say, God, I need your help. I need your salvation. I have no hope apart from you. The Bible says you become a Christian by recognizing your brokenness, your sinfulness, and calling on God to save you. And when you recognize that your only hope is God, that should have the effect of humbling us. See, God heals that brokenness when we get right with Him. And we can't get right with Him by just going to church or giving to the poor or even taking a correct moral stand on some issues. We get right with God when we say, oh God, I recognize I've fallen short of your standards. I'm sinful. And I need you to save me. I need you to do for me what I could never do for myself. I believe that Jesus died in my place and that he rose again. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid a penalty that none of us could pay by ourselves. Then when he rose again, he demonstrated that he was really God in the flesh and that he offers that life to us. The way any human gets right with God regardless of what they've done or what they are doing, is by coming to Jesus and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me and he rose again and I'm trusting in him and him alone. When we make that decision, the Bible says you pass from death unto life. But when you come to Christ for salvation, that should build a humility into you. Because none of us can say, I've earned God's stand. I deserve to be in church because I'm good enough. The very essence of being a Christian is we recognize we're not good enough and it's all by the grace of God that we are here. So when we stand for the truth of God's Word, we will never compromise that truth. We need to present it with love. Genuine care for the people that we're talking to. Never as a weapon to condemn. And we need to stand up for truth lovingly and with humility because we recognize that God was merciful to us. You know, it's said that most Christians don't come to Christ the first time they hear the good news. And so for any Christian, if you're talking with people who disagree with you or are even disagreeable towards you, humility is the way. Because just as God had every right to get impatient with us, saying, you are taking a long time. This truth is pretty obvious. Why didn't you come to me the first time you heard? But God is patient with us. And he gives us chance upon chance upon chance. So for God's people, when we take a truth that God lays out in his word, in this case, we're talking about marriage. Let's stand on that truth. Even though the standards of the world may change, we get our standards from God's Word. We get our convictions from God's Word, but we hold that conviction with love and humility. Because humility really is required to become a Christian. If you're too proud to think that you're not sinful, then God says you're not ready yet. But it's when we're broken and we say, God, I repent of all this. I'm turning to Jesus. That's when God says, welcome to my family. 
So may we as God's people stand on the truth, love the world that may even reject that truth, and we would do it with humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, the truth of your word is under assault in our society. It is uncool, it is unpopular to take a position that the Bible describes as right on this matter. But Lord, I pray for each of us that you would give us the courage to hold to what you say. And I pray that we would do this with love and with humility. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here who doesn't yet know Jesus as Savior, that today would be the day that they turn to him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.